One great way to read a passage for the first time is to read it from a different angle. Okay, so if you've heard this passage before, you're familiar with it, maybe it's another passage of scripture, you've read it several times and you're trying, how can I approach this for the first time? How can I get excited yet again about the word that has been taught to me from the beginning? A great way to do this, this is just a helpful biblical reading tip, a great way to do this is to read it from a different perspective. Say, I am going to read this passage as, say, a Jew might read this passage in first century AD at Jesus' own time. Or I'm going to read this as a non-Christian. I'm going I'm to put aside my, uh, my uh, uh, presuppositions for a moment and, and approach this. How would a non-Christian understand this word? To, to kind of approach it from a different perspective and see it anew. A great exercise to do, and one great way to do it is to pick a character in the text with whom you want to intentionally sympathize with for a while. So, to that end, this morning, I'm going to suggest that we see things from Nicodemus's point of view. So, we could do this passage, we could address this passage and think about this passage from a number of different angles. We could, in fact, pick apart uh, the various things that Jesus says here, and, and we will do that, we will... Uh, look at why Jesus says what he says and what he's claiming by that. And we could proceed maybe theologically through this passage and ask, what is Jesus teaching? We are going to do those things, but I want to do it from a different angle. I want to ask, what is Nicodemus's question and how does Jesus's response challenge him? To kind of put ourselves in the position of Nicodemus and hear this conversation, because that is what this is, right? Three, uh, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You can put that on your, uh, your uh, above your eyebrow, you can write it on the wall, you can memorize it, good passage to memorize, I'm not critiquing any of those things, but this passage, John 3, 16, doesn't stand by itself. It is a part of a conversation that Nicodemus is having with Jesus. This, these words were said to all the world, but they were said first to Nicodemus and this immediate audience, and it was meaningful for them. So let's engage in this conversation as a conversation, as a give and take, as a back and forth, and see how the various parties of this conversation uh, engage one another, how they come to understand one another, because that is what Nicodemus is trying to do. These are two men having a conversation, butting heads a bit, trying to figure each other out. It's an ordinary kind of life situation that we experience daily. So what's going on in the midst of this conversation? I'm going to proceed then by just going through the various elements of the conversation. Um, the conversation in general has three parts. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what those are from the uh, up front, but uh, listen for those three parts as we go through and we'll pursue the logic of this moment that Jesus has with Nicodemus. First then, this conversation gets started by Nicodemus posing a topic for discussion. Right? That's the first thing that happens. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and he comes to Jesus with a question. And already 
you have a lot of questions going around. Already, at this, this simple kind of stage-setting exercise that John is engaged in, you should be uh, uh, confronted with some very obvious questions. Well, who is Nicodemus? What is a Pharisee? Why does he come to Jesus? Why does he come to Jesus by night? And notice that he's described as a man of the Pharisees. Kind of a cumbersome phrase. Why not just a Pharisee? Pharisee comes to Jesus. Pharisee named Nicodemus comes to Jesus. That little phrase, a man, it's actually intentional. It's intended to draw your attention to what we talked about, what Eric talked about last week. If you go up one paragraph prior, one sentence prior, you'll find that Jesus does not entrust himself to the crowds. Why? Because Jesus knows what is in the heart of a man. Jesus, on his part, did not trust them because he knew all people. And he had no need to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. But a man of the Pharisees came. Jesus knows, see, there's a contrast going on here. Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. Jesus knows that man is uh, inherently a cynical creature, that these people are here for the signs and wonders. He will accuse them directly of that in John 6. They are here for the signs and wonders. They are not here for me. But a man of the Pharisees, it's, it sets up this story with a tone of hope. It sets up the story. Maybe here is an exception, an exception to the rule. And if you know anything about the Pharisees, you know that there's a little bit of a surprise there. The Pharisees are considered by us and probably by John's original audience to be the bad guys. They're the guys who are skeptical about Jesus, whose skepticism over the course of John rises until they are against Jesus by the end of the book. And yet here, a surprising man, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, who has a question, who wants to see Jesus for himself, who wants to understand what this man is teaching. We have, at the beginning, a kind of, John is setting us up with a predisposition to like this guy, to appreciate what he's asking. And, and actually, as he goes on, he says, rabbi, a term of respect. Uh, he himself is a rabbi. He's trained rabbi. Jesus, not trained by any rabbinic uh, college or under any rabbinic teacher, so not officially a rabbi, and yet uh, he's... he's <laughs> This would be like giving somebody an honorary doctorate, right? Um, uh, what Nicodemus does is he gives him honorary rabbinic status, perhaps a little bit uh, uh, tongue-in-cheek, but rabbi, you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. This is, the, Nicodemus approaches Jesus in this conversation with intellectual integrity. He is genuinely curious. He wants to know Jesus and his teaching better. And the reason he wants to know Jesus and his teaching better is because of the signs that he does. These are signs that come from God. And Nicodemus, unlike the crowds prior, Nicodemus takes the message home with him. If he is able to do these signs, then shouldn't we also listen to his teaching? See, those two things go together. 
you receive a sign from God. You receive signs from God so that you might teach with authority. Nicodemus is a smart guy. He knows his Bible. He knows that that's how it worked for the prophets before him. He knows that that's how it works even in his own day, that the prophets come with signs authorizing their ministry. Jesus comes with signs, so I need to not only seek out the healing which he offers, the signs which he offers, but his teaching. That's the point. And so Nicodemus poses a question. And unlike the later Pharisees who we are told by John, John doesn't leave us wondering about this. Later conversations, the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. Nicodemus is not trying to do that. He is a Pharisee whose curiosity has been piqued and who wants to talk to Jesus in order to learn more about his ministry and about what he has to say. Now, having said that, as Nicodemus poses the topic, what he does and the way he does it is he sets up the ground rules as Jesus and I are about equal. Jesus might be a little above me, or I might be a little above him. We'll find that out at the end of the conversation, right? That's how, that's how people, that's, that's still something we do, right? Who's, who's the superior and who's the inferior in this relationship? Uh, Nicodemus, that's part of his question. Part of his question here is who's the superior and who's the inferior? Who's going to follow and be a disciple of whom? And there's a lot of subtle things in this passage that indicate that, not the least of which is the fact that Nicodemus poses the question. Nicodemus puts out a topic on the table, right? In verse 3, he says, uh, excuse me, verse uh, 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That is the topic under discussion. That is the proposal. Here's, here's what we're going to talk about tonight in our disputatio. It's, like, it's likely that this happens at night either because Nicodemus is uh, trying to keep things a little hush-hush, a little under the radar, uh, but it's also likely that he's doing this because this is when you would schedule a Sabbath symposium. You do it at night. You do it in the evenings. This is when the rabbis would get together, uh, perhaps because some of them had day jobs, to consider something under discussion. Uh, so they are having a philosophical discussion Philosophical discussions are best at dusk, and Nicodemus, as the superior in this situation, gathered with his disciples, gathered with his entourage, approaches Jesus, gathered with his disciples, and poses a topic. Let's discuss this together. You are a man of God because of the signs and wonders which you do. And here's where, it start, here's where it starts to get dramatic. Here's where the conversation gets interesting. Because Jesus has a choice. Jesus can choose to accept the topic that Nicodemus proposes. Proposes with integrity. Proposes because Nicodemus is trying to figure out who Jesus is. Jesus can accept that topic or pose a new topic. And as you look at the passage, it's pretty clear what Jesus does. Uh, Nicodemus says, I want to talk about that you have come from God because you do signs and wonders. And Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The topic is still broadly considered theological. 
still talking about God and the kingdom of God, the things associated with God. But Jesus switches the discussion. And he does this throughout John. A question will be asked, a statement will be made, and Jesus will shift the question a bit. He won't just directly answer the question. He won't say, oh, yes, I'm doing these signs and wonders. He, he shifts the question a bit because he wants to guide the conversation to a new place. And as we'll see, this is the place where it needs to be. He's trying to guide Nicodemus to a new place, to ask a different question. Your question isn't good enough. Rabbi, teacher, signs from God, that you come from God. Nicodemus, even at this early stage, Jesus is challenging Nicodemus. That's not good enough. That's not a good enough question. If the things I do and the things I say, if you recognize that they are from God, then your question needs to go deeper. It needs to be more fundamental. It needs to be more important than the question that you're posing, than the topic that you want me to address. We need to talk about something else. We need to talk about how a man can see the kingdom. How can a man be a part of this kingdom? And there's a subtle criticism here. It's packaged as a statement, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's packaged as a simple statement, a general principle applicable to everyone. You must be born again to, be, to, be, to have a vision to see the glory of God, the kingdom of God. But there's a subtle criticism here. There's a subtle point that Jesus is making, and it's a point about Nicodemus. He is telling Nicodemus, in the question that he's asking in his response, he's telling Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You are not there yet. He's telling Nicodemus, you cannot see and have not seen the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He has been studying the word of God since he was yay big. He is an important, prominent, wealthy Pharisee. He has got an entourage. He's got a crew that looks up to him and respects him and honors him. And he has brought that crew, very likely he has brought that crew with him. This isn't a private conversation. This is a public conversation. And Jesus throws down, you need to be born again. It at least implies that what Nicodemus needs, the thing that is lacking about his question, is the fact that Nicodemus has not yet seen the kingdom of heaven. Now Nicodemus has the choice in the conversation. Nicodemus can flip the tables again. He can change the subject again. He can tell Jesus, what authority do you have to say that? Tell me about these signs and wonders. Let's go back to my question. Nicodemus does something interesting. I really wrestled with this far longer than I should have this week. But I was genuinely curious if, this, if, if Nicodemus' response is, is it, is it motivated by uh, ignorance? Is he just surprised? Is he just shocked about the idea of, of new birth? Is he, is he motivated by uh, self-justification? Uh, what motivates the fact that, Jesus, uh, that Nicodemus does this surprising thing, which is to accept Jesus' opening topic as the topic for discussion. See, Nicodemus posed the first topic. Jesus poses a different topic. You're not going foundational enough. You're not deep enough. You're not asking the right question. 
And what Nicodemus does is he submits to the topic that Jesus poses. Okay, let's talk about that. Whether that's, you're right, I'm not asking the right question, or how dare you, I don't know. But he accepts what Jesus wants to talk about as the primary topic under discussion. And then he immediately looks for an escape. You'll notice that uh, Nicodemus's role in this conversation begins to dwindle over the course of the passage. Nicodemus has just less and less to say. That's not a good sign if you're the rabbi who initially posed the topic. Uh, but Nicodemus's role in this conversation gradually diminishes, but he has two objections. So Nicodemus, the first thing he does is he poses the topic and then submits to Jesus's reposing of that uh, of a topic. And the second thing he does is he tries to escape. He's trying to get out of the accusation that Jesus has made against him. So his first objection, right? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be, or, be born? Jesus says, truly, truly, uh, unless you are born of water and in spirit. So now Jesus keeps the topic, right? The topic has stayed the same. But why does Nicodemus pose the question that he's posing? Why does Nicodemus say, can a man enter uh, his mother's womb a second time? What's going on there? Nicodemus, obviously, doesn't think uh, somebody can enter his mother's womb a second time. So he's asking about this idea of being born again or born from above. What does this mean? And at this point, we have a legitimate question to ask Nicodemus. Are you asking that because you don't know? Or are you asking that because you're offended? It may be that Nicodemus doesn't, just doesn't get it. He doesn't get what Jesus is claiming. That's the typical approach that we have to this passage. Nicodemus doesn't get what it means to be born again. That language is surprising to him. And though the words that Jesus used to express that concept, the idea that you must be born again, that to become a Christian or to become a true Jew is to be born again, uh, though that uh, those, those words that Jesus uses to describe that are new and a little bit confusing perhaps, the concept is something that Nicodemus should know. That's how the Pharisees themselves talk about becoming a proselyte. To, to become, to join, for example, Nicodemus, to become a Paduan of Nicodemus, you are, you become as an infant. Like Nicodemus understands conversion means new birth. I mean, it's all over Ezekiel in the passage that we just read. You need Israel, not something external, you need a new soul. So I would pose that while there might be some kind of confusion going on here, that the real reason Nicodemus asks this question is because he's offended. Because he picks up precisely what Jesus is putting down, which is that Nicodemus needs to be born again. And of all the people who should be a member of this new birth community. Surely it is Nicodemus. Surely it is the students of the law. This is how one becomes a part of the kingdom of God. This is how you are born again. You devote yourself to the law, and as a result, you are like a tree planted by the waters bearing good fruit. We just sang that. It's Psalm 1. Nicodemus knows his Bible. 
He knows that by studying the word, you are become as an infant, born again for a kingdom of greater things. Born again into God's kingdom, God's inheritance. The problem that Nicodemus has isn't the concept, isn't the fact of being born again. It's how one does it. That's the problem. And that problem is personal for Nicodemus because what Jesus is saying is, whatever it is, you don't have it yet. Whatever it means to be born again, it doesn't describe you. And so Nicodemus, trying to gain back that conversational ground that he has lost, puts Jesus' own words to an argumentum ad absurdum. How can this be? If, If not me, if I haven't been born again, then what possibly could born again mean? Does it mean you have to be literally born again? Jesus doubles down. Jesus' response is, yeah, that's exactly what I was saying. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit and spirit. So do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. If it was unclear before, it is clear now. Jesus is pointing fingers. And that you there, it's unfortunate that we don't have the official Texas translation which should be in official Texas translation, y'all must be born again. It's a, it's a, a, a second-person plural. He's pointing to Nicodemus. He's, he, this is a broad sweep. You must be born again, all of you. And the implication is you're not yet. Your devotion to the law, your devotion to righteousness, your devotion to obedience to God. These are good things. They are not bad things. But they don't constitute the new birth. And already here, at this point, we have a lesson to learn because we approach this passage and passages like this, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. We approach passages like this and instantly conclude from the beginning that whatever this passage might mean, it's not talking about me because I'm already saved. I'm at church, a church with pews. Like, I belong here. I belong in this kingdom. And what Jesus wants all of us to do is to ask ourselves, on what grounds? How can a man make a new soul for himself? That's what you need to be to receive a vision of the kingdom of heaven, to be a part of that kingdom, what you need is a new soul. We have trouble figuring out how to wake up earlier in the morning or how to give up that bad habit. We have trouble setting, uh, keeping our New Year's resolutions. And yet what Jesus says is what we need to be saved is a new soul. Where is the how-to list for that? Where is the internet instruction guide? Do I need a hex key? Like, how do I do that? Because that's what we need. No wonder Nicodemus is looking for an escape. He is being accused here. He is a leader of the Pharisees. He is an expert in the law. He has devoted his life to teaching and applying the law in his daily life. And Jesus is saying, 
that's not enough. That's not what new birth is. You need something else. Something's missing. What you need is not a conversation with another rabbi to give you tips or pointers. What you need is a new soul. You need a new heart, a new mind. You need a transformed will. You need something that's called the new birth. Where are you going to go for that? Well, it must be from above. It cannot be within this present fleshly order of existence, right? That's what Jesus says. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. You see, there is no therapy in this world that can provide you with what Jesus is offering. There there is no instruction guide. there There is no new product out there that will give you what Jesus wants to give you. I mean, you look at the marketing on lotion and it says rejuvenating new birth. But there's, there's no lotion, there's no product, there's no psychologist, there's no psychiatrist, there's no drug that can provide this because it cannot come from the order of fleshly things. It has to come from above. It has to come from God. The flesh begets flesh. Therefore, uh, you, those who are of the flesh cannot understand the things of heaven. And therefore, it must be the one who has ascended into heaven. Um, It must be the one who has come from heaven and descended from heaven. That is to say, the Son of Man, verse 13. It must be the one who has come down from heaven and will return there. That is the process of new birth. That is the only way into this new heavenly realm is to be gripped by the one who comes down from heaven and pulled out of the present earthly fleshly order into a new one, a heavenly one, by the spirit, by water and spirit. That's what Nicodemus needs. And it's in that context then, after this second objection, how can these things be? It's in that context that Jesus gives us that justly famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's a wonderful verse. But notice in this context what Jesus is claiming. He's claiming a hard thing. We put this verse on bumper stickers as if it's not a hard thing, as if it's a a glorious truth that is simple and heartwarming and God loves the world. God is love and he loves the world. But notice what he is cla- Jesus is claiming here. God loves the world, so he sent his son to redeem it. See, this is, if everything of flesh begets flesh, if there is no escape from this fleshly world of existence, then how can we be heavenly beings? then how can we have a vision of God? Then how can we be God's own people, citizens of a heavenly kingdom, if there is nothing in this world? See, what Jesus is saying is that there is only one who can do this. It is the one who came down from heaven and ascends back to heaven, the Son. The Son is given for this task. It is the Son and only the Son who can give new birth. It is the Son who, in accordance with the law and the prophets, sends forth the Spirit at Pentecost, and through that Spirit gives Nicodemus, gives us, 
give anybody, gives anybody who names the name of Christ and believes on him eternal, spiritual, resurrected life. He brings us out of death, out of flesh, into a new world order, a new creation that is the kingdom of God. And it is only the Son who can do this. This presupposes that without the Son, there is no hope. But no, no, God so loved the world. And, And it even goes on to say the Son didn't come into the world to condemn the world. Right? So Jesus didn't come with dark things. He didn't come to bring judgment. Right? But notice how the passage goes on. How it goes on for Nicodemus, how it goes on for us. Why did he not come to condemn the world? Because the world is condemned already. Jesus doesn't need to add to the condemnation. We are in a state of condemnation. That is our natural state of being. What is flesh? He gets flesh. The world is condemned. The Son is sent that it might not be. If you are not in the Son, you are condemned already, and the only escape is the new birth, and the only access that anyone has to the new birth, the new birth, the birth that comes from above, the above birth is Christ who came from above and calls us So Jesus' point is made. He is the source of new birth. The world was loved, and so the world received Jesus Christ. This is the uh, proposition then given to Nicodemus. This is the end result of of the conversation. This is what Nicodemus needs. And again, our conversation takes a surprising turn. Nicodemus is suspiciously silent. Nicodemus is not a foil, right? He's not a foil just to get across something Jesus wanted to say already. You've been in conversations like that, right? Where somebody asks, how are you doing? And you you say, oh, I'm doing fine. And then they uh, ask how, and you ask them, how are you doing? And they say, oh my. You know, you're just a foil so that they can get their, you know, message across uh, to you. Nicodemus is not that. His silence is not because Jesus took over the conversation. His silence is because Nicodemus is gradually retreating because Nicodemus actually gets it. He gets what Jesus is claiming. He understands that though he approached the conversation with Jesus as one looking to see if he's got an equal, somebody who can match wits with him, though he approached the conversation trying to find perhaps some good advice, some, some new tidbit or Uh, tip about how to put the law into practice in life. Though he approached the conversation as if Jesus was going to offer him something or prove something, what Jesus is actually claiming is that Nicodemus needs to bow the knee and that if he doesn't, he is of the earth. He is no better than a Gentile. He is flesh. See, Nicodemus approached Jesus as a teacher and a rabbi and a sign giver. Do these signs. You're a teacher. You're a rabbi. You're from God. What Jesus is saying, no, I am God. I am from above. That's my home. That's where I came, and I came down to save you. It's not good enough. What you believe isn't good enough. Teacher, rabbi, sign uh, sign doer, miracle worker, that's not good enough. 
It must be Lord and Savior, or you cannot see the kingdom. Jesus so completely flips the tables on what Nicodemus was expecting that Nicodemus now has no choice. He must either oppose Jesus or become his disciple. I love this passage. I love this passage because one of the things that John is showing us here is that Nick, there are many ways to faith in Jesus Christ. Nicodemus is a slow believer. It takes him a long time. In the very next passage, uh, excuse me, two passages uh, down the road, we'll be doing Jesus and the woman of Samaria, another justly famous uh, passage in Scripture. There, the conversation is, uh, continues throughout the discussion, and the woman in Samaria le leaves believing in Jesus. Nicodemus leaves with ambiguity. He leaves in silence. It takes him a long time. He has got to process this. For to believe what he has just heard is to flip his world on its head. The law does not give new birth. Only Christ can do that. The law is fulfilled in Christ. And so if I'm to be obedient to the law, I must, I must seek Christ and the things that belong to Christ and be transformed by Christ and submit all things to Christ and become his Paduan, become his disciple and forsake the knowledge that I once had. Good news. We meet Nicodemus several times in John. He's one of the few um, interlocutors that Jesus has uh, that, that Jesus has that is named. And the reason is that he's named, I think, is because John wants us to see his story unfold. In 750, Nicodemus uh, comes to Jesus' defense. It says, Nicodemus, who had gone before him and was one of them, said to them, said to the Pharisees, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. See, Nicodemus wasn't dismissive. He went and he did just that. He searched and he inquired about what Jesus is and what he does. And he is now on that path. We get the sense that he's defending Jesus. And then by the end of the book, we're not sure what happened in the intervening time, but by the end of the book, Nicodemus, after Jesus' death, Nicodemus also, the one who earlier came to Jesus by night, came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 70 pounds worth in weight. Nicodemus honors Jesus at his death and in his burial. He's slow to faith but he becomes a disciple. He realizes that what he had was as rubbish before the glory that belongs to the Christ. There are many paths to discipleship. Some of us were saved almost immediately. We heard the testimony and we wondered, why has no one told us this before? When can I be baptized? Some wrestle with the claims of Christ because they are big claims. They require the death of an old life and the birth of a new one. They're big claims. But Nicodemus, in the end, exploring these things, searching and inquiring about who would be the Christ and what the Christ requires, he comes to faith. 
and he finds that new birth. And we too, we must find our life in Christ and in no other. Father, we pray that this word would be with us. We pray that it would sustain us. We pray for those here that don't know the Christ. We pray that they might explore and learn from the word what it has to say. We'd not be content with what others say it says, but would find it out for ourselves and be shocked and surprised and come then to faith. We pray for those who have believed for a long time. We pray that we would not cease to examine ourselves, but that having examined ourselves, we would come to Christ and to his spirit and find a continual supply of rejuvenating energy through the spirit. We pray that you would give us life and that that life would be a life abundant. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.